Welcome to Inspired Artist Podcast with me, Sirgan Carr. Before we get started, please remember to subscribe to this podcast, rate it, and comment. Um, this will help people find the podcast and it will help us to grow. So this is a really special episode today. I got to speak with Matthew Remsky, who is someone that I became aware of through the Premka group, or one of them, on Facebook. And I was really fascinated by his commentary on Sonatum's public message that she, you know, that she gave out. I had never heard some of the terms that he was using. I'm not familiar with cults or, you know, cults in general, at least not that I was aware of. And I thought this was a really um, interesting kind of person to have on the podcast. And I'm really glad we did. So know that this is no sort of conclusive conversation about what is going on in the community right now. Um, we are talking somewhat about Premka, um, White Bird in a Golden Cage, uh, written by Pamela Sahara Dyson, which was this book that came out that has really rattled the Kundalini yoga world. Um, people are finding out things. There's a lot of skeletons coming out of the closet. Um, the reactions range from complete denial that Yogi Bhajan ever did these things to complete outrage and then somewhere in the middle with people trying to integrate what they felt were you know really wonderful practices that served them um, and contending with how now this teacher Yogi Bhajan who is being accused of things from like rape child molestation abuse in so many forms how to integrate that into their understanding of this practice that they felt was really beneficial to them. So I also want to mention before we begin that Matthew did not plug his own book. So I want to let you know that he does have a book out. It's called Practice and All is Coming, Abuse, Cult Dynamics, and Healing in Yoga and Beyond. He has a bunch of books. You can go check that out on his website. There's a link in the podcast description. So enjoy this conversation and let us know what you think. I would love to hear about your background and how you came to write about cults. Well, it comes out of personal experience and then um, the recovery from that personal experience. Uh, from 96 to 99, I was recruited into a cult run by a guy named Michael Roach, uh, who's an American Neo-Tibetan Buddhist who took or earned or maybe didn't earn the title of Geshe, which is kind of like the PhD of Tibetan philosophy in the Galupa tradition. Um, and he came to Vermont in, where I was living at the time uh, in my first marriage. And uh, the local group of Buddhists there invited him to make a stop and give a couple of talks. And uh, there was a very strong transference uh, experience that I had upon him. Um, and I also think that I was situ situationally vulnerable in the sense that I was, I believe, suffering from depression that was undiagnosed. It wasn't in my family culture to seek out therapy or, or mental health support. Um, and uh, that was three years of uh, following him around the world, um, doing work for him and his various businesses, transcribing his talks, being told that uh, I would be given co-authorship on books that we would do together, uh, writing the books, having the books get ignored, um, uh, being sent on all kinds of tasks that were basically 
fool's errands that was that was one of the sort of you know manipulation debilitation techniques that was used within the group to keep everybody busy and focused upon the leader um that was three years uh much longer for for a lot of other people when i was able to break away um and i was able to break away because interestingly he went into a kind of um well he withdrew from public life he went into a kind of retreat uh, in the Arizona desert. So he left everybody uh, in the group kind of high and dry for about three years. And a lot of people left. A lot of new people came. A lot of new people were recruited. I was one of the people who left. Um, and as is not uncommon uh, with, um, you know, people's recovery paths, I actually was recruited into another group through a series of network connections, also based upon my, um, my lived experience or my, my, you know, living network in Vermont. And uh, that group was called Endeavor Academy in Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin, which is a bizarre uh, throwback kind of B-grade Disneyland town that is... <laughs> that for years was the sort of uh, weekend getaway for the Chicago mob. Um, and so it's all like um, weird old theme parks and, you know, resorts and, um, you know, uh, rickety roller coasters and bumper cars where people get injured all the time. And, and um, it was, it was, it was also kind of, it was kind of like, it was a Midwest Coney Island. And the joke was that, um, oh, well, isn't this appropriate that, you know, we come to find the spiritual reality that the world is not real here amidst this decay of the American dream, right? And, and so that was, it was a very intelligent cult that way. And, and people had a, a deep sense of irony and uh, we would speak of ourselves as being cult members, um, but really, that's uh, interesting. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's it's it, we had a fair degree. A lot of us had uh, a fairly high degree of of kind of meta awareness, mm -hmm. but that didn't mean that the dynamics themselves weren't um, at play and enforced. Um, so uh, that was another that was another three years he died in in 2008 and i believe that the the place pretty much dried up after that i i think there are still some people who gather on sunday mornings in wisconsin dells and and uh do their kind of kundalini jitterbug and that's you know that's kind of uh but i i don't i don't really know that there's any structure left mm -hmm. um you know, the, the groups that I've gone on to study are like highly structured, intergenerational, um, completely routinized, institutionalized groups that, that have really strong infrastructure. Uh, and um, both of the groups that I was in were different from that in the sense that they were really based upon the charisma and the impact of their singular leaders. And so um, neither, I would say that neither of those uh, men were successful at routinizing or at um, delegating uh, power, power and authority. Um, unlike in Shivananda Yoga, where you know there's a worldwide network of 11 ashrams and 26 retreat centers or something like that, and um, and then the Kundalini organization is just immense, like Byzantine uh, yeah. and and global. So. Um, yeah, that's a little bit of my background. I think that um, I guess I got out in 2003 or so. 
for 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 good. And um, although you you never you you never really get out until you do the therapy, I don't think, and you never really get out until you start. I mean, I shouldn't say this. I think general in general terms, people don't get out without a good amount of therapy. Yeah. I think in my case, what was super, super important was um, learning a little bit of the cult literature and, and how succinctly and directly and, um, you know, lucidly the, the, uh, the researchers describe the mechanisms because they all sort of like clicked into place. It was, it was such a relief to, you know, come across Steve Hassan's bite model or the mind model by Kathleen Mann or, and stuff like that. Um, it was like just kind of looking into a photograph, a meticulous photograph of the past and saying, oh, wow, uh, that's, that's what they did to me. Yeah, um, yeah, and, I get that. Yeah. Um, that happened to me actually when I started to look into how my first birth went. In a, in a different way, but just learning about the, you know, the industry of, of birth was very uh, healing for me. But right. I'm curious, because you were so self-aware that it was a cult, what was the shift for you where you were like, well, it's a cult, but I no longer like it? Um, it's an interesting question. It's, it's like, because the ideology, the totalizing ideology of the group was the world isn't real. It meant that your meta awareness that you were in a cult didn't matter either. So there was a really sophisticated level of self-deceit, uh, well, deception and then self-deceit going on where um, we could get to the point where, where we could on one level say, yeah, this is cultic, and then on another level say, but it's the, the way we have to be. Hmm. Um, so it's a little bit confusing, uh, like at the, at the root level of, of the cultic dynamic, the relationships are so solid. The ideology is so firm. The somatic relationships are so dominating that, and the practices are so debilitating that, um, you know, cognitive awareness alone doesn't do it. You know, mm -hmm. you have to, you have to, um, you have to have somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. You have to have somewhere to reestablish yourself or to find uh, an independent self again, or to be reminded of the self that you came with when you, when you walked in the door. Mm -hmm. um, and most, most of the researchers talk about, um, not in scientific terms, but this widely reported phenomenon of um, people not their 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 pre-cult selves not dying entirely when they when they walk in the door. And but they go into sort of remission or into hibernation or something like that. And somebody's got to wake them up. Hmm. And um so so yeah, I, I mean but but another question that that your your question or I never thought that your question brings up is is um you know how long did it take you to decide that you didn't like it. Well, mm. most people will tell you um, when they're deeply embedded in a cultic organization that they know they have to leave long before they actually manage to do it. Mm. Uh, and that's because the, the tendrils of dependency are, are so um, diverse, right? There's, 
it's, it's not just about, you know, you might not just be relying on the theology or your transference upon the leader or, you know, the, the, the daily routines that you believe are keeping you safe. Um, you're also going to be, uh, in many cases, completely socially embedded, reliant upon other people for childcare or for, mm-hmm. you know, work or for, um, um, you know, just a whole host of, of dependencies that are very difficult to break. And the people who end up running away in the middle of the night uh, because they can't stand it anymore usually really struggle to find any semblance of security within that first uh, time period uh, because, you know, they because there are so many kind of links into the group that, that they are breaking all at once. And so it didn't really work for me to work, to, to leave until I knew that I wasn't going to be alone uh, until I knew that I didn't need the, the daily ritual that I could do other things uh, until I knew for sure that uh, the people in my hometown, including people who knew me when I was in high school, still loved me, uh, even though I'd blown them off years before. Um, and yeah, so all of those, I had to get little hints from a bunch of different places that I was going to be safe. Because one of the things that the cultic organization does is it proposes to you as the member that it is your safe haven. Uh, and it does what it can to kind of enforce that. Yeah. So we met, or I met, I became aware of you from the Premka group, this book that Pamela Zahara Dyson just published about her experiences with, with Yogi Bhajan. And as you're talking, I'm realizing through the book, sort of these points that you're talking about and that feeling of safety and what, what struck me, well, one of the many things that struck me about that book was how she even at the end was still looking for a way to remain within the organization. Um, Even when she was, you know, no, you know, even when she, she noticed that Yogi Bhajan was more human than she had realized or. Well, well, she, she all, I think she's also trying to, um, I mean, it's an amazing narrative uh, because we cover 16 years and it feels like the last several years, there's this thematic arc where, she knows that there's something about the community, the relationships she's phone, formed, the bonds that she has that is worth serving and continuing on with, and that she wants to figure out a way to do that despite the leader. Mm-hmm. And so there's this active desire to separate the community off from its toxic leadership uh, which she has been involved with uh, mm. and and has been the manager of and has generated so much of actually herself. And it's in a way like um, one of the most moving things about the book is to realize that uh, whatever goodness, and this is a theme that I've I've explored in a lot of my research, that whatever goodness the group actually has usually comes from its abuse survivors. Mm. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's like people, people loved her. People loved her. Uh, in the Shivananda Yoga Organization, uh, people loved Julie Salter. It was like Julie had it under control. 
she was taking care of of Kutaner when he was like, you know, uh, um, delirious with diabetes. Uh, like she was, she was the one who could give good counsel. She was the one who could be comforting. She mm -hmm. was the one who wasn't going to, um, you know, blast you when you walked into a conference with her. Uh, she was the one who made him look good. Mm -hmm. she, and so, so. It, it makes a lot of sense from that social perspective that Pamela in some way like has a lot to lose by walking away. It's not, she has, she, and the, she has the product or the, or the, the capital of her own social goodness to lose to, by right. disowning, by walking away. And, and, and like, over and over and over again, the same theme comes up. I'm 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 writing a feature on um, Shambhala International and the transition from Trungpa to his son, uh, and the same thing is going on there. Basically, the the goodness of the organization is embodied by the women who survive it, and and like the, you know, it's a, it's 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 like the guys are the the, the leaders are masters of misdirection. Uh, it's like everybody, they, somehow they figure out how to get everybody to look at them when what's really happening is that the women who are standing behind him are creating the entire landscape of warmth and, right. you know, and, and whatever is welcoming about the damn thing. It's like, it's, it's, and I, I've, I've seen that that was true in my group with Michael Roach. Uh, he was always surrounded by 10, 15, 20, uh, women, some young men, but women, mostly in their 20s, who basically made the organization look like it was some sort of Buddha paradise. And, and like, so it's not just about, it's not just about the predatory abuse. It's, it's the, um, it's the fact that the people who are objectified and used are the ones who actually create social capital for the group, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so when I think about Premka, um, uh, about Pamela, uh, wanting to leave, uh, it's like, not only is there the sunken cost of 15 of her best, you know, householding years right. where she has been told by this, you know, monster really that he that that she can't that she has to be like him uh she refuses ultimately uh that she has to um not think about having children that she has to dedicate herself to the cause entirely the, the irony is is that she did <laughs> she did and 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 she she made the thing she made the thing look good and um yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm a little bit worked up by it because because <laughs> it's 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 um many people are. <laughs> yeah, but I I mean this particular angle on it it's mm -hmm. it's I think it's I think it's not I th I I don't hear it sufficiently talked about. It's like yeah. people say why did you stay or why did why were you recruited or why did you join? Uh and it's like because this weird byproduct of the cult is the appearance of 
service, well, it is service and generosity, but it's coerced service and generosity that lures other people in, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, when a person wakes up out of that, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure one of the things that, that Pamela is, is feeling, I don't know if she says this directly, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, is that I have something to offer to this group. I, I, I actually have something to offer this, to this group. Right. And this is my family. And why should I have to leave? Right. And, and over in the Shivananda group, they're, they're doing something similar by um, rejecting the independent investigation that's being hired by the, the, the organizational heads. They're saying, no, we don't, you know, we don't trust you to get to the bottom of this. We're going to hire our own investigators. We're going to run our own investigation. It's like they're claiming the moral center of the organization, mm-hmm. right? That's yeah. amazing. amazing. Because that's where they are now, actually. That's where they are. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I see going on, which is really fascinating to me in the 3HO environment, I don't know if that's what you call it from the outside, but that's what we call it, um, is this, this trying to understand something from the inside. So right. we have all these people who believe all these things that they've been taught trying to look at the man who taught them in an objective kind of way. And I'm just, I'm seeing that it's going to take a little bit of time for people to really be able to step out and look at it from an objective. Yeah. I mean, I mean, here the cult analysis is really clear that one of the functions of the high demand group is to disallow outside information. There's nobody who can, um, uh, give, there's nobody who can fact check Yogi Bhajan, right? While he's alive. There's nobody who can come in and say, you know what, you're, that's, you know, this whole thing about Sikh Dharma is interesting, but, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what, uh, what, what real relationships there are between you and the teachers that you've said you've been with and so on. And, and, uh, there's no kind of, um, there's no peer review. <laughs> there's no, there's no uh, citations. There's no references. Everything comes from a single source, and that single source is a black box. Um, and so, when in uh, Steve Hassan's bite model, um, which we can link to for your listeners, uh, is goes gets into um, the I category of information control. That's what he's talking about. It's like you, as you're with the group, uh, you are allowed to take in and to work with and to consider and to meditate on and to memorize the group's information about itself, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why Philip De- DeLeap's uh, essay, uh, his scholarship on the origins of Kundalini Yoga, was so oh, I, yeah was so incredibly important. And I'll link powerful. that too. And I think, um, and I think that he. Um, I was talking to him and he said that um, he said that somebody likened it to um, loosening the jar on the peanut butter uh, before Pamela's book could come out. Mm. That was that, that was that chronologically that happened just a little bit before her book. Yeah, his paper is 2012, so people have had about eight years. Oh, okay. And I wasn't aware of this. Right. It's like the only scholarship on how Kundalini Yoga comes to be as a thing in the world. And and if you're in 3HO or if anybody else is in KRI or whatever, mm-hmm. and they don't know about this essay, they're being they're 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 being blinded actively, right? 
Um, so that alone, I think, uh, is a really good example of information control. And yeah, and so, you know, I, I wrote this little thing about um, uh, Sanatom Kar's um, crisis statement and about how, you know, very earnestly, heartbreakingly, and um, I think with the best of intentions, she's saying, she's saying, look, uh, when I am in trouble, I fall back on these mantras, which transcend time and space and the personality of the teacher and all of this stuff. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, but they always did. I'm sorry, let me cancel that. Yeah, but they always did. They always did transcend um, uh, time and space. They always did. They, 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 they haven't changed between yesterday and today. And they didn't let you see this coming. And they didn't give you any insight into restorative justice or into cultic dynamics. Or, and in fact, um, you know, in the worst case scenario, uh, those mantras, that chanting, especially the fact that it's so unbearably beautiful, is like it, it's it's it would be a key. It could be a key factor in some people suppressing critical thinking skills. It's like so much easier to listen to her gorgeous, unbelievable, unearthly voice than it is to say, "Wait a minute, where the hell is this mantra coming from?" Mm -hmm. And what am I being taught through it um, about the world or about where it comes from or about the person who first said it? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, the month or two of the mantras actually that she listed, which I found really interesting were ones that were created by Yogi Bhajan. So not coming from um, Sikhism, but actually ones that right. he authored, um, right. which is, which is interesting. It It's fascinating to me. Um, this idea of knowing that you're in a cult and not, and not caring, I guess, because that some definitely something that I think people, many people are self-aware about in 3HO. Um, but it's like, Oh, but it, but this is so great. Why does it matter? And then there's different, different levels of involvement as well. Right. Well, it's a very diverse group. Yeah. Right. Um, and different levels of commitment and vow taking and, you know, uh, how many Kriyas or Sadhanas are you going to do every day? And right, right. 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 That makes it that that complicates the, you know, the 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 boundaries of the group, like who's actually in and who's out. Um, I have a metaphor that was supposed to I, I wish had gotten into my book, but it just didn't. Um, and the metaphor was that. Uh, with these global yoga and Buddhist organizations that are super complex and uh, quite diverse, where, you know, there are some environments that, you know, may be relatively safe and some environments that are actually quite toxic. Um, it's kind of like we're looking at uh, a geography instead of a, you know, a space with a perimeter, like, um, if we mm -hmm. think about like the state of California during fire season, there's going to be hot spots throughout, but it's not all going to be on fire. And so if you think about Kundalini yoga as a global, you know, community as kind of like the state of California uh, during fire season, um, there's a lot of like non burning spaces on the map at any given time. And yet the closer you get to the fire, 
the more smoke inhalation you're going to get, you know, the more, I don't know, I don't know, groundwater depletion there's going to be, there's the more flora and fauna is going to be affected. Uh, and you, you can get closer and closer to the center through a process of recruitment, indoctrination, propaganda. Uh, and, um, but when it's, when, when fire season di dies down, uh, it's going to be the non-burning parts of the state of California that are responsible for reseeding, right? Um, it's going to be the, the, the non-burned uh, uh, zones that are going to, you know, send out their little pine cones and, and, and you know, nurture the wildlife. So how do you see that as, um, as a parallel in the 3HO community or some of the other cults that you've studied? Well, uh, you know, the question while I was writing the book about Patabi Joyce that everybody would ask is, well, are you saying that Ashtanga Yoga is a cult? And I would say, no, I would, I would say it's too global, too diverse uh, to call it a cult because there's no centralization. Um, you know, we've got hundreds of local yoga shalas uh, with varying levels of commitment to the Joyce family. Uh, and so we really have to talk about it in terms of uh, like, almost layers uh, mm -hmm. of an onion moving towards the center, but where, where, you know, loosely identified spaces with Ashtanga yoga might be safe, but they might also be gateways to more intense uh, encounters with the ideology or with the leadership. Um, and I'm assuming from what I know about 3HO affiliated or Kundalini affiliated yoga studios just here in Toronto and Canada, uh, that um, those gradations of commitment and connection also exist, mm -hmm. uh, where there's going to be a lot of, you know, I think there's a place here in Toronto called Lotus or something like that. And then there's one in Ottawa. Um, and they... I think the leadership in both places are strongly Kundalini affiliated, but you know most of the regular students on any daily uh, basis are going to be just members of the public who are never interested in going to an immersion or you know doing a huge juice fast or any of the sort of you know high buy-in activities for the group. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that they go into those public spaces means that they can be potentially recruited. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting about these like global organizations is that there are these layered sort of um, uh, spaces of commitment and intensity. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you can stay on the periphery and you might be safe for a long time. Or if, you know, the person is particularly good at sales or if their devotion seems to be really, really strong and that's impressive to you, uh, they can be almost gateways to the next layer of commitment. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the, the harm, for example, um, in, in a yoga community? Well, let, let me back up. So I think, a lot of, I think a lot of us in the West came to yoga as an alternative to spirituality, at least I did, uh, that was more Westernized, you know, like Christianity or... Right. Um, yeah. And so I think, I think the assumption is that it's not it's not going to tell you how to live your life. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but you find yourself sort of in a similar, in a similar position, which actually led me to research what is the difference between religion and cult, um, to which I, I found that, you know, there's, there's a lot of blurred lines here. But I wonder from your perspective, what the, what's the harm? What's the harm in, 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 in being in a, if you realize that you're in a cult 
and you, you enjoy it, what, what's the harm? Well, if you really are in a cult, mm -hmm. uh, your enjoyment is propaganda. Uh, because, you know, by definition, uh, being a, a member of a high demand group means that you're being exploited in some way. And that can be in terms of your bodily energy. It can be in terms of your, your you know, labor, your emotional labor, uh, your intellectual integrity can be uh, exploited for the purpose of the group. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, th there's the person, the person who says, yeah, this is culty and I enjoy it. Maybe they're not really members either. Uh, then they might be consumers, hmm. right? Um, I'm sure that just like there are varying levels of investment in the wellness industry, there's people who can spend $150 on Gwyneth Paltrow products every month, and there's people who can spend $800. Uh, and but you know, stage one will lead to stage two. So. Yeah, I think it, now if the person really is a member, if they really are being exploited and they're saying, well, I like it, it's worth it, I, I enjoy it, that's their, their I, I would say in most cases, they are repeating group speak back to you. Mm -hmm. Because what, what else are they going to say? Right. Yeah, I, if, you, if one has ever done sort of like a, a fruit fast or something like that, um, I'm reminded that we're, we're told that it's going to feel good or that it's going to make us feel better. So everything we go through as we're doing it is towards that end must be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, whether, right. you know, you are hospitalized or you faint or, you know, whatever. Um, right. And then you must be better afterwards. So no, you know, so it, yeah, you, you lose kind of an, um, you lose your ability to sort of see things clearly which oh yeah yeah and in fact the you know this is where um Janjalalich's uh term bounded choice is super super important because um the juice fast is a really good or the fruit fast is a really good example of that um uh it the totalizing ideology says it's a good thing therefore everything that goes wrong is actually a good thing in disguise uh therefore um and if it goes right, then obviously it was a good thing. But um, if it goes super wrong and you actually, your health goes into decline, then that's a good thing too. Because either it's shown you that you are inappropriately attached to your body, or it's shown you that you have deeper layers of karma to unfold, or it's shown you that, um, I don't know, you... you um, you 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 have an astrological aversion to the redness of the watermelon, and so you should. I don't know. Like, the, yeah. there there can be any explanation given for your shitty experience to transform it into something that's that's ultimately for your benefit. Right. Yeah. You have no way out. The goal the goalposts are always going to change. Yeah. So I mean, you know, having having been part of this community for a while, um, it. I, I really resonated with that thing that you said where you know a few years before you actually leave um, that you leave because a few years ago, that's what happened to me. And I just, I went, I'm living by a lot of ideas that I'm not even sure if I believe, you know, and, and, um, and the fear to leave is, is really, is, was really real for me. I mean, right. 
and I don't think I, I didn't like have to escape anywhere. I mean, I was living in my own house. It wasn't, it wasn't about that. And I mean, I'm still, I still know these people, you know, um, right. And they're, you know, and some of them have made the same decision as me at like the, the same time, which is interesting. Right. Um, that, can but, be, that, can be, that can be really helpful too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. But the, the biggest fear for me was if I stop doing X, Y, Z, you know, all these protocols that I'm meant to be doing, then what happens? Exactly. Right. And well, the answer, the answer was nothing. <laughs> My life right. got better, but, but that was, that was a real, that was a real fear. Cause when you're told that, you know, if you don't do this karma, if you, you know, that you're going to, I was, I was actually told I, that people who, who break their vows will go insane. Um, you know, like, like they will lose their, their grasp on reality. Um, yeah. What an incredibly, what an incredibly uh, paradoxical thing to be told for something that is claiming to empower you, hmm. right? It's like the opposite of what's what would be so. That that I I remember I remember this time when um, uh, you asked me you I think you asked me how did you how did you were asking me generally about leaving or how did you figure out that that you were done um, after Michael Roach went into retreat. Uh, for three years, uh, my final conference with him, interview with him, he said, uh, "Go to uh, the University of Wisconsin because there's a Geshe there who's going to teach a summer course in this like esoteric Tibetan book, uh, and you should go there." And so I spent spent out maxed out my credit card again and went to Wisconsin and got a job in a movie theater and by day went to these lectures which were incredibly incredibly boring and um, and just did not help with my depression at all and that's how I wound up in Wisconsin and it was like forty five minutes from. Endeavor Academy, and I, in a crisis moment, I phoned my friend back in Vermont, and I said, "Who's that guy in Wisconsin you were talking about?" So that's how that's how that part of that transition happened. But one of the things that one of the things that happened during that course, it was like six weeks long, uh, is that there were a number of of American Neo Tibetan nuns there, and one of them was going into three year retreat, and they were building their little cabin out in the countryside and they needed a washer and dryer. And so I volunteered to go with a guy who had the pickup in the group to Home Depot to help move the washer and dryer, to get it into the truck and then to bring it into her, her house, which was being you know, still built. And so I did all of that. And I'm riding with a guy, the guy with the pickup truck, he's my age, so um, late 20s. And uh, he says to me, uh, he's very pious, very faithful dude. And he says to me, you know, I really wish that, you know, we Westerners could actually get the depth of what these Tibetan lamas are offering us, you know, because we just don't take it seriously. Like, and then he starts telling me the story about how he was in Dharamsala, which is where, you know, the Tibetan government in exile is. And, you know, there was some you know, retreat there. And uh, Lama Zopa Rinpoche was, had, to, had told this woman, 
uh, that she had to, as her preliminary practice, she had to um, make and offer 100,000 butter lamps. So this is not an uncommon you know, preliminary practice. 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantras, 100,000 butter lamps, 100,000 mandala offerings. It's like, it's like you take your pick of this torturous um, you know, initiation into discipline, uh, which you know, is, is kind of like the sine qua non of progressing in that particular stream of Tibetan Buddhism. And so this guy was talking about how this woman, how she was so egotistical and so stupid and so self-involved that she quit after 28,000 butter lamps. <laughs> and, and she quit. Can you believe that? And I remember just sitting in the sitting in the in the in the in the pickup truck in the middle of the countryside, kind of shrinking down smaller and smaller into something. And then finally turning to him and saying, but what if what if he decided what if she decided it was enough? Like what if what if she'd had enough of that? What if she'd learned what she needed to learn? Well, how is she gonna know what she needs? And I'm like, oh. And then you were asking me how about about you know how I knew how the what was the thing it was it was like it was like we knew in the second group that we were part of a cult well here's the hook into the second place was I came with stories like that, and the people there, including the leader, said, "Oh yeah, that's bullshit uh <laughs> you know, there's no path, there's no seeking, you know, your, you know, your identity as a spiritual seeker is the biggest fraud you've ever perpetrated on yourself in the world. And none of this is real. You know, you are always, you know, one with God and whatever. And so, and so it's like cult number two was able to successfully plausibly critique and deconstruct cult number one for me. And so that was super, um, compelling and uh, I think effective uh, with regard to recruiting me, but that but that um, I started telling you about the butter lamps because of something that you said, which was which was you know what about all of these things that I'm doing, and um, yeah, it's like somehow the group makes you believe, makes the member believe that it's going to decide what's best for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not like anybody's spent any time getting to know you. It's not like anybody's interviewed you really. Nobody knows your background. They've certainly not done a psychological assessment. And so how, what's, where does that, where does that come from? That, that, that incredible feeling of entitlement over other people's lives. I'm not sure, but I think charisma has an awful lot to do with it. You know, the, the, the charismatic person uh, tends to, uh, you know, project this sense that they just have it under control. Uh, they know what's what. Given the, the and thank you for that. Um, given the, what you said, Byzantine structure of the, you know, the Kundalini Yoga organization, that, I think that was your term. Yeah. Um, do, is it your sense that there was a premeditation? Like, do these leaders know what they're going to do? Um, so I tend to agree with most cult researchers in not 
trying to parse about parse out intentions of leaders there's kind of like a goldwater rule uh mm -hmm. in the field where you know because yogi bhajan is you know never went to therapy never was diagnosed with anything um it it just doesn't make a lot of sense to try to guess at you know what his psychiatric issues were uh, likewise, it's very difficult to guess at the levels of intentionality behind the manipulation and deception that you see. Um, I really don't know. I mean, like, uh, I haven't, I haven't come across um, really clear evidence that any of the leaders that I've studied wanted to hurt people. In the sense that, like, they were really sociopathic that way. Mm -hmm. um, but that it just seemed to be their natural thing. Like, the, 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 the degrees of, of self-centeredness and, um, uh, you know, narcissism in, in general, not clinical terms, are so high that they just can't help it. Um, there are really interesting passages in Pamela's book uh, where she talks about Bhajan being surprised by her gaining assertiveness, her growing assertiveness, and moments where she, he has a reaction that she's not expecting. You know, she tells him off about something and he like, he's taken aback for a moment, but then you know, she can see that his eyes are darting back and forth and he's sort of playing chess five moves ahead. So that seems to, you know, indicate a sense of intentionality. Um, but it also seems totally automatic. You know, it seems like this is not something that this person has control over. Um, like, it's just what they do. And um, yeah, so so... You know, the thing is about, about psychotherapy and, and psychoanalysis, not as a practitioner, but as somebody who, you know, is a beneficiary of these things, uh, is that once something does become conscious, though, it's unconscionable to continue it. And so, um, you know, if the KRI and 3HO leadership start to look at this literature or start letting in outside information in or start, you know, uh, going to trainings in organizational health. Uh, um, and they start, and they start, you know, having some insights about the kind of culture that they've, uh, participated in over the last several decades. Um, then, you know, then the notion, then the notion that that harming people or organizing harmful structures was intentional can really be spotlighted because you can't like you can't read Alexander Stein's book on cults and disorganized detachment and then go back and start abusing people. Like you can't, you just can't read John Jalalich's "Take Back Your Life" and keep participating in structural harm. Um, I mean, I suppose you can, but it would be just really, really unlikely. So, so I just like to think forward about it. It's like, I have no idea what you meant to do, but this, it's clear what you did. 
and mm-hmm. and here's the mirror and uh, let's do something else now and mm-hmm. here are some outside resources to help you with that right a lot of people um, who are not you know um, discussing this in the Premka group but in other groups that I've you know that I've been a part of and you know because I'm I'm in the grapevine of everybody's responses um, mm-hmm. there's you know, it's like, this is blasphemy. Um, she's getting paid. There's all these sort of, you know, excuses for why she would do this, um, to discredit, you know, to discredit what she said. And it's interesting because her book is actually very benign when compared to the other accounts, you know, she'd actually didn't have such a horrible experience compared to, you know, Kate Felt's story or, Right. Um, some of the other stories in that group. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to quantify emotional harm, but also I'd like to say too that if we we want to we want to we want to stick carefully to the text. What mm-hmm. I think what we can say is that she doesn't describe. She doesn't just she she makes choices about what she describes, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, she's making choices about what to disclose and what not to disclose. And so, um, you know, I think it's I think it's safe to say that that what she describes is not as dire as Kate felt. Of course, it's not as dire as what Gail Treadwell describes in Holy Hell. It's not as dire as what Leslie Hayes describes going through in relation to Chogyam Trungpa. Um, but um, that doesn't mean that it's a full story, mm. right? And it also doesn't mean that um, that survivors have strategic ways of presenting what they need to present in ways that um, create in their view the most positive change right so so you know it's like Anybody who writes a, a memoir of 16 years of their life is going to be making choices about what they include and what they leave out. And so I think that what we, we to just to be totally clear about what the book has is that, you know, it's a memoir, but it can't be telling the whole story. Uh, and, and I would say, too, that um, the generosity of the narrative voice towards the organization, towards the lieutenants, uh, towards towards Bajan himself um, is a very strong sort of. It expresses the character a, a character intent on Dyson's part to, I think, offer something that is accessible to the to a, to a high number of people within the community, and something that also shows that a person can recover. Like, I, I haven't talked to her, so I don't know what, what her intentions are, but, but, mm-hmm. I, but I, th- this is what I get as a reader of a lot of this literature, is, is uh, a narrative that's doing a lot of things at the same time. Uh, and, um, you know, that's why when, when uh, who was it, Kelly Brogan? described it an expose or a tell-all or something like that like what a horrible thing to say about it um about that book it was it's not an expose at all it's not a tell-all right um and um yeah so i would just i would just for for everybody who's listening to survivors 
-hmm. understand that they've got to make really clear choices for themselves about how they tell their stories. And those choices have to do with uh, safety. They have to do with um, accessibility. They have to do with um, the stage of recovery that they're in. Um, and so, so I also like, I also, I, I, I get a little bit itchy about, about um, people making very strong statements about, uh, you know, what Pamela's like <laughs> or something like that. What, what Dyson is actually like from reading this memoir. Hmm. Um, because, you know, the memoir is a 200 page book and it's, it, let's just evaluate it as the text itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yeah, so I hope that's clear. I, I, I don't, I got into a little bit into the weeds there, but I think it's important to, for, for people to not, um, in the same way that it's really difficult to attribute intentionality to Yogi Bhajan, it's also difficult to attribute intentionality to anybody else. Sure. And, and so, um, yeah, I try okay. to stick to the text. Yeah, well, it makes it um, it makes it a fascinating a fascinating uh, journey, sort of dissecting all of these you know perspectives and stories and things, and so much of it does seem to line up. I mean, um, right. the the character the character portrayal of this charismatic leader is pretty. You know, it it has it has a continuity among the people who are speaking out what right. i wonder is what about all the people who left you know there's absolutely absolutely so so it's really it's really important for us to understand that um pamela's book is unique in the sense that uh it is survivor literature that was able to be produced right mm -hmm. the vast majority of people who leave high demand groups ghost away don't want to have anything to right. do with it anymore they try to forget what happened uh many die of suicide um and nobody ever finds out because they've disconnected themselves uh this is this is the un this is the unheard story i had to i had to i mean karen rain uh, who is at the center of my book on Joyce, changed her name after she left uh, Ashtanga Yoga. She left the yoga world entirely. Like I had to play detective and pay for like, you know, identity searches to figure out which Karen Rain uh, in which state I was going to phone. And I had to phone like eight of them or something like that before the right one picked up. And even then it was like, do you, this was a long time ago. Do you, do you really, do you want to talk right, about this? Right. You know, you, is this, is this of interest to you? And uh, so, yeah, yeah. You're going to get a lot of people who um, uh, because high demand groups rely upon continual recruitment, there's a lot of people going out the door too. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. So the stories that you're not hearing, you can imagine that they run the gamut and that a lot of them are as desperately bad as the, as the stories that you are hearing. Yeah. The name thing is, is interesting that you brought up because so many of us had changed our names. Right. Yeah. Right. I was going to talk about that too. I mean, my gosh, like talk about dri driving a wedge into the pre- group and post group self that's that's mm -hmm. an amazing that's an amazing tactic in and of itself i mean i understand the value of of a spiritual name for sure but like um 
you know, to, to be on the Premco group and to watch testimony after testimony of people um, who are, um, you know, uh, describing incredible experiences of systemic abuse and then posting under their spiritual names is like, it's incredible. It's weird. Yeah. Um, sometimes legal, for example. Sometimes my, legal names, right. Legal right. Name. Mm-hmm. right, yeah. right. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. And it's going to take a long time to, I think, for people. Well, hopefully not a long, long time, but I think that this will be an evolving conversation. And I think so. Yeah. I think Thank so. you so much for, I know you have to go and yeah. tend to your children or child. Um, right, and, uh, two. Mine just left. <laughs> oh, good. Right. Yeah. No, uh, one's home with a sore throat. And then, and then we've, got the, uh, we've got the almost four-year-old as well. So we'll try to keep them relatively peaceful and occupied oh nice mine are four and seven. Oh my gosh oh same same pretty much oh really oh how funny yeah yeah <laughs> seven and a half and three and three well he's going to be four in may oh, oh how cute oh, yeah. yeah mine just turned four yeah right yeah well before yeah, you go would you would you tell everyone how they can learn more about you yeah, I mean my touch. name my name is my website plus a dot com and then and then I'm you can find me on Facebook um just under my name. And um I well, do and I'll link that um I've got a on on I don't know when this is gonna go up, but uh on Tuesday of this well, tomorrow of this week, so this is March 9th, um I'm publishing a follow-up to my first feature on Shivananda Yoga. And um then uh, in April, there's going to be a feature on, on Shambhala International. And, um, and then I also like run online seminar stuff and, and other things. So yeah, thank you so much for your questions. It's, it's nice to think of. I, I loved your, the interview that, um, you did with, with someone, I watched it on YouTube. So I got the idea for this. So yeah, thank you for Thanks for showing up. And um, I know everyone's going to really enjoy this in this conversation. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Have a wonderful day. Bye. You too.